Well, howdy campers. Uh, welcome back to Stress Free Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Little, uh, just back from two weeks in China at the um, at the Wuhan Weight Loss Clinic, uh, where uh, slightly overweight guys like myself would go to lose 15 pounds of unsightly fat that just can't seem to shake off, uh, and that's pretty much what I did. So uh, it's very good to be back. Uh, I should probably just get this out of the way during the course of this particular show, especially you're going to hear me doing a little bit of a tickle cough, <coughs> like that one, for example. Uh, it's actually got nothing to do with um, my uh, recent uh, experience with um, with Chinese medicine and science technology. Uh, it is... Uh, it's an artifact, actually, of having had really bad bronchitis when I was a kid, and that contributed to the overall, uh, you know, adventure. So, um, obviously, uh, I mentioned, we talked about this at some length on the backstage show, available members at BillWhittle.com, but that gets seen by a couple hundred people, and this one gets seen by, <coughs> excuse me, and I hope this doesn't blow out your speakers, uh, by a couple thousand. So uh, I might as well tell that story again here. Um, so um, we did the show last two weeks ago on December 23rd with my uh, nephew, Ashi, uh, who's basically stayed here for the entire time and had less than a thrilling vacation, didn't complain once. That kid is just beyond imagination. He's just a great kid. I did set up a virtual reality headset for him, though, and he managed to play a couple of games all the way through to the final boss level, but anyway. So, um, we did the show on December 30, December 23rd, we did the show with my nephew, and he had arrived the day before, and the day before that, Natasha had been feeling a little off, so we went down and got the uh, COVID test, because we didn't want Ashton to come out if we were going to be sick. So, we take Natasha down to, I take Natasha down to a testing center, and um, and they administer the test, which apparently there was no charge for. And then we said, so when do we get the results back? Because we'd asked for the for the fast test, the rapid test. And they said, sometime tomorrow. Well, Ashton was coming in that night. So we said, no, we need the, we need the rapid test. So they tested her again. Um, and uh, that one we had to pay cash for. So the rapid test comes back negative, hooray. Uh, the boy gets on the plane. Uh, several hours later, he arrives. I pick him up. We come in the next day. We do the show. However, Natasha had, had not been feeling much better. And then uh, the day that we did the Stratosphere Lounge, uh, I, might, I probably mentioned this during the last Stratosphere Lounge. The day that we did the Stratosphere Lounge, the results of the second test, the first one we took, the, the longer, more accurate one, came back positive. <coughs> Excuse me. So somewhere around this point, I'm starting to think like, all right, well, it's been two years. We've been dodging this thing. Let's just um, let's just get it over with. So did a little Christmas shopping on the uh, 24th. I felt different, but I felt fine. Um, when I say I felt different, I felt aches in my joints and my muscles in my back mostly. That was about it. I uh, felt warmer than usual, too, so I just went in, you know, it was, in its, it was probably in the mid, mid to upper 60s, just went into the mall did, with a t-shirt, did some Christmas shopping, and um, got back and realized, yeah, okay, I'm feeling a little more achy, woke up the next day, uh, feeling a little down, but not too bad at all, really. And I, I got to tell you, folks, the last, even to even continuing on to today, the last three weeks have been just a real blur. But somewhere in there, 
I put up the first of the two Facebook updates I did saying, look, it looks like I've got COVID. I'm sure it's Omicron. I'm going to pretty much sail through it. I'm feeling, you know, feeling a little weak, feeling a little bit uh, fatigued. So I may take a week off, but don't worry. Everything's fine. And then the next day, uh, I realized, no, I didn't have Omicron at all. I had the, uh, I had the Omega variant. <sighs> Somewhere the next day or so, I just, I don't know. Here's, here's what I remember of it. Um, because of this bronchitis I had, whenever I get there's whenever I have like even, I have, first of all, let me just say this. I never get sick. I haven't, the last time I had the flu was 2009, I think. 2009, Jeremy Boring and a bunch of guys went to Africa on a USO tour and he came back with something that was just spectacular. And that was worse but it was 24 hours 48 hours tops so i don't um i don't i don't get sick i haven't been sick in forever i don't get colds even so um started coughing uh okay phil i'm glad you're here oh, bobby's here too um so i started coughing as a result of this bronchitis it wasn't the the, the virus wasn't in my lungs never got to my lungs but this little trigger started working and I ended up coughing so much and so badly that after a day my ribs really started to hurt but the worst of it was my my throat got really really raw and I kept doing that kept coughing and uh, one of the things I found was that uh, found out way too late to make a difference was that I was kind of stifling coughs <coughs> like that and and it was kind of I don't know back pleasure was blown out the gaskets uh, in any event, no, but there's no such thing as Omega. I'm the only person who ever got it, me and Natasha. She, she didn't get the Omega. She got the letter that comes before Omega. She got the penultimate virus. I got the ultimate virus. Anyway, by the third or fourth day, and I think probably one day after I put up that first Facebook post, my throat was scarlet, and by the, by the morning of the next day, it was actually purple. And, um, and the sore throat was so bad and the coughing had been so insistent that was driving the raw throat that I felt at the same time that I had 15 broken ribs and also the sore throat was, was so bad that I couldn't drink anything. And for about three or four days, I couldn't, I, I would take a sip of water. I described it on the, on the Facebook post I put up and also on the backstage show, but I just liked the description because it came to me the second I did it. It was one of the three or four or five days into this thing now and I reach over and, and, and take a drink of water and it's like I'd poured myself a mouthful of electricity. Uh, that, um, that was exactly what it, uh, what it felt like. Like I just had a mouthful of electricity. It just electric pain. So again, a lot of this is a blur, but somewhere in here, I ended up with at least five or six days of this kind of sore throat. I didn't drink, I, I drank barely anything for three or four days. Fever started to come in somewhere around day four or five. And I was too stupid to know that Tylenol is real good at breaking fevers. Um, so I was doing Excedrin or Anison or something for the muscle pain from the coughing. And I had a fever of 102 for about seven or eight days and in the middle of that seven or eight days it was a routinely 104 for three days at least and after a while of that you really do kind of 
it, it cooks your brain. I mean, it's what it's designed to do. Your body's amazing, actually. It was an amazing learning experience going through that and, and, and plenty of time to think about things. Try to figure out what is it about evolution that's causing my body to react in this way? Why am I getting hot? Well, for fevers, the hotter the body temperature is, the tougher it is for the germs to reproduce. So your body's basically cranking up the heat. It's almost a weird sort of way. It's almost like chemotherapy. It's basically making all the cells uh, punished, but it's but what it's really doing is slowing down uh, the, the uh, spread of uh, viruses and, and bacteria. <coughs> Gotta get over saying, uh, excuse me, so excuse me for the cough. Um, so the temperature went up, and then I r realized somewhere in here, I got the cough under relative control, and that meant the sore throat kind of got a little bit better. And then the next thing I know, I'm eight days into this thing, and I hadn't eaten anything. And I mean anything in eight days. And because I had, not only was I not hungry, the idea of eating anything made me sick, and there was nothing I could think of that I would, I mean, I got Postmates. There's nothing I could think of that I could keep down. And I also thought, um, I also thought, oh, that's interesting too. You're, but basically what my body's saying now is, no, we don't have any time or energy to waste on this whole digestion thing, pal. You've got enough fat on you to survive this thing. We're not going to waste any time on anything. We're just going to we're just going to take all the energy your body makes and we're going to fight this virus. And that means uh, you're not going to be hungry. Uh, it means you're going to sleep I don't know, 20 hours a day, something like that, without any trouble whatsoever. You're just going to go into um, into into combat mode. Now, I should have prefaced this whole story by starting off with this. I knew the coronavirus was out there, and uh, and I have questions about the vaccine. So I was not vaccinated, but that didn't mean I wasn't prepared. It didn't mean I wasn't ready for this, because well over a year, a year and a half ago, I talked to our doctor, uh, and um, and I told him I had some concerns about this this vaccine, uh, whenever it came out. He said, "Okay, that's certainly understandable." Um, I said, so what can we do about this? And here's what he said. He said, if you feel sick, you or Natasha feel sick, get tested immediately. And if you turn out that the test is positive, do not do what they tell you to do. They, if your test comes back positive, they'll tell you, go home, rest, drink plenty of fluids. He said, don't do that. That's just giving the virus a chance to get a foothold and just have a field day for four or five days and multiply like crazy. The second you know that you've got COVID, call me. And, um, and so that's what I did. And I knew that he was going to prescribe me a certain number of, of medicines that have been declared, um, uh, just mentioning them would probably be enough to get this video pulled down from YouTube. I'm not in the mood to have that happen. So anyway, you know what I'm talking about. So I was, I've been waiting for this for a year and a half, but somewhere in the back of my head, somewhere in the back of my head, I remember thinking I'd rather have that medication with me now than wait to be prescribed it when I need it. But that little voice in the back of my head was not strong enough to have overruled the overall general, uh, you know, confusion of my life and lethargy and all the rest of it. So, um, when it came time to call this doctor, I called the doctor, and he turns out he had it too. And he said, um, he said, Bill, I've, I've made, I've made nine calls, and I've called four other people who have also made calls. 
the, the medicine that I was going to give you, the antiviral medicine, the, the vitamin packs, all that stuff, is not available in California anywhere at all. Not available. And I thought, well, that's unfortunate. And it was still pretty early, so I thought, oh, you know, I'll just tough it out. What's the big deal? Well, it's not available in this state anyway uh, for political reasons that I think are clear and I don't want to get into right now because we... We all know the story by now, I would think. After all, it was just, uh, what, almost two years ago, March 18th, during Stratosphere Lounge, we start to get the lockdown. So my defensive plans, which I'd had in place for, I don't know, 16, 17 months, I had the defensive, I had the, you know, I had the, I had the, the, the camp defended. I had, I had machine gun nests, I had, I had claymores, I, I was ready to go. I knew exactly what I was going to do and when I was going to do it. And then all of a sudden, the, uh, these uh, viruses show up. And I'm clicking the Claymore buttons to blow these bastards into, into oblivion. And no, they're not going off. And the machine guns are not firing because they don't have any ammunition. Next thing you know, my immune system is screaming at me, man, they're, they're inside the wire, man. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. It's like, I just shoot one and 20 of them take their place. I just start going into full-on combat mode. So... He had also said, all right, look, if there's a place in Santa Monica or something that does, uh, it does antibody treatment, uh, give him a call. If, you're, if it's starting to feel really serious, give him a call. So we gave him a call. Nope. What we found was that there were lots and lots and lots of people who were ready to come and, uh, and, and, and treat you as long as you weren't sick. If you were sick, none of them wanted anything to do with you. They just was off the table. It's not going to happen. So anyway, it wasn't like I didn't, it wasn't like I wasn't prepared. I was fully prepared. And, and I was assured by this doctor, this is way before Omicron, the milder version came out. He said, it, it'll be, you know, it'll be a, a semi-tough two or three days. It'll be a, a medium to bad cold. That's what these antivirals will do. Well, I didn't get the antivirals. In fact, it took me better part of, I don't remember what it was, 10 days to put a second post up on YouTube. I mean, on, on Facebook and the website, basically saying, hey, man, I'm, I'm really hurting here, <laughs> really hurting here. And then all of a sudden, all this medicine starts coming in from, uh, from all of you wonderful people. And next thing you know, we've got enough medicine to treat the state of California. But by this point, I'm eight or 10 days into symptoms. And that, that medicine's not going to do really much good. Because by that point, the immune system had done what the immune system was supposed to do and had had managed to hold its ground. That's basically how it works with a surviving a, a, an infection or a, any kind of a disease, viral infection or whatever the case may be. It's essentially um, a race and it's, a, and it's an endurance race. And the race is are the viruses going to be able to multiply fast enough to kill you, or is your immune system going to be able to respond in time to save the body? <coughs> now, Ashton, my 13-year-old nephew, felt sick for about, I don't know, 16 hours, miserable little. He's a great kid. He, if he, he felt bad for about less than a day. By the next day, he was up and... I feel good. He felt he felt pretty crummy the day before, but not super crummy. He's still playing VR games. It took him about certainly was less than twenty four hours to just 
knock the living hell out of this thing because he's 13. And I haven't been sick in so long and I get sick so infrequently, I kind of assume my, my immune system is 13 years old too. But what I learned was it's actually not. Uh, what the last uh, three weeks told me was that uh, no matter how much I may wish it to be different, you, that I don't have a 13-year-old immune system. I got a 62-year-old immune system. And that's not bad, but it's not what I was hoping it would be. So, let's see. Days and weeks pass in a blur. I'm losing all this weight, and I know it after about eight days of not eating, and that's the only way I lost this weight, by the way. I never would have had the willpower to lose this weight. However, as a weight loss program, it's not recommended. Um, however, after about eight days of not eating, I realized that now, now the not eating is, is getting to be a problem because I'm just, you know, I got <laughs> not, not eating anything. It's not helping my strength any. So the, so the big turnaround day happened somewhere 10 days into this, something like that. And, and at this point, I've had the fever for six or seven days, I've had big fever for three days, four days. And uh, our office manager, Shelly, and, and uh, our friend, uh, Ginny, um, were calling everywhere in the state. Found a place in Anaheim that uh, was able to do... Um, I, I was happy just to get fluids at this point because I hadn't drunk much of anything either. I was really badly, badly dehydrated. I was so dehydrated that even after the sore throat started to back down, I would take a drink of water and I'd put the water down. My lips were parched already. I just, I just couldn't get enough liquid in me. So we find out, hey, guess what? There's a, there's a, a clinic in Anaheim. And uh, we just talked to them on the phone, and, um, and they can give you uh, the, the uh, antibodies or whatever. I, I, I actually do not remember what it was at the time. Fantastic. So, um, so Jenny, Jenny's car won't start. Okay, so we rent a car, and I'm lying down in the back seat like I used to when I was going on long road trips with Phil and Bill Deshong and Doug Gagan and all the rest of the gang. Just lying on my back with my knees up near my ears, side on my back on the back seat of the car. Natasha's in the front seat. She's feeling really bad. She's as sick as I am, except she didn't have the cough or the sore throat. We drive our butts down to Anaheim, which is kind of like driving to Mogadishu. The roads are unbelievably bad. And if you're driving, you don't notice it so much. But when you're lying flat on your back, it's like, good God in heaven, what am I paying all these this taxes for? We get to this clinic in Anaheim, walk in. There's a number of seats, and then there's a couple of, you know, like, what do you call those? Medical beds. Just kind of medical beds, I guess. So I take a medical bed, and I lie flat on my back, and just that alone felt good. So they come out, and they're, they're talking to me, and they said, how long have you had symptoms? And I told them, and they said, we can't help you. I just drove down here from, from the valley. Uh, it wasn't a gurney because it wasn't movable. It was, a, it was just in the waiting room. <coughs> yeah, well, sorry about that. We didn't, when we took the call, we didn't realize you'd had symptoms for 10 days. Not only will this treatment not help you, it might make it worse. Uh, well, what do I do? And they said, well, there's an emergency room right over there. And I was going to walk across to the emergency room. And I was done, 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 done. But just then, we got a, a, a call from my sister who'd been trying to get me fluids. And it turned out that there was a clinic similar to the one that I talked about several uh, weeks ago where we just went voluntarily just for IVs for vitamins and stuff. 
I was so dehydrated by this point that I, that I, I really thought that this was my primary problem. And, and the reason I was going to go to the hospital was just to get an IV. So we get the message that, uh, hey, there's, um, there's a place in Beverly Hills that'll do intravenous fluids for you, just fluids. And they know that you've got COVID and, and they'll do it anyway. So I figure instead of going to the hospital in Anaheim, why not just go back to general direction where I live? That's what we did. Went to this clinic in Beverly Hills and, um, and I got there and uh, they immediately just, I just laid down on a, on a kind of a hospital bed. And then this nurse who really, really knew her stuff was looking for a vein. And look, I don't know how many times I've had blood taken, but the older you get, the more you have your blood taken. I mean, I've done 30 times easily. And it's never been much of a problem. But we went in there, and, and this woman was, was, was doing the, had the tourniquet, you know, tapping. And there's no sign of any veins at all, of any kind. They couldn't find anything. Not even, not, forget about finding a vein big enough to put a needle in. There was just nothing there. And, and she said, you are fantastically dehydrated. I said, I know that. So she, uh, she kept going. And then finally on the, the third uh, strike, I think she, she got the needle in the vein. And she was very good. She was very, very, very good. And finally, at this point, now I'm lying there and I've got, and I've got a, a bag of fluid. And so then they put in a bag of fluid. They put in a bag of vitamins. And they put in a third bag of fluid. And I can't tell you I felt much better right then, but I knew I would be feeling better because this was the, the, the main thing. Um, so by this point, I'm just so out of it that it's like I was really getting a little worried. So after the fluids, we go to a hospital here in the valley. And um, waiting room was relatively full. During the worst of the pandemic, I had to go into the hospital briefly, and there was nobody in the waiting room, and there was nobody in the hospital either. This was like in you know, May or June of 2020. It's completely deserted. But um, we go to the uh, room and, and the emergency room and tell them I'm feeling bad. I tell them my wife tested positive for COVID. I never did take the test myself. Um, she uh, so they immediately take my vitals. Temperature was down, which was good. And then they put us over in a corner which was kind of the uh, COVID uh, uh, leper colony. And they had, a fan, <laughs> they had a fan blow in there. And that fan was blowing air towards the, the, the main part of the emergency room. But when I don't mean a fan, it was like a, like a, like a you know, it wasn't like a floor fan. It was the kind of fan you would use to dry paint, you know, one of these industrial things. Oh, just going on and on and on and on. And I'm sitting on a wooden chair at a, like at an interview thing, there's like a window there. There's a number of these things. And, I'm, and I've just got my head on my hands and I have to wear the bloody mask and that's not making it any easier to breathe. And I sat there for four hours. I don't remember it being four hours, but I do remember being exceedingly uncomfortable during that whole time. And a couple times during these uh, four hours, uh, Ginny and Natasha, one or the other, or both went to say, hey, any, you know, any word on, on this guy? They took me back there and did an x-ray somewhere in there. I never found out what the results were because after four hours, I just said, I'm just, just get out of here. That's what we did. Just left. Went home. And then the next day when I woke up, I said, okay, this is the first day in 14 days where I feel better.
And of all the things uh, that I went through with this, uh, the thing that was the worst was the sense that I'm not getting any better. I'm, st I'm, I'm not getting better. There came a point when I wasn't getting worse because I didn't think I could get any worse, but I wasn't getting better. And that was a lovely feeling. I wasn't feeling good, but the day after I got the fluids, I woke up feeling much better. And here's the big irony. Somewhere around this time, again, it's all kind of a blur, but somewhere around this time, medicine starts coming in from everywhere from all of you kind people all of the all of you kind people members non-members all of a sudden we just just this wave of stuff that i should have been taking on day two arrives on day 14 which i am enormously grateful for and so is natasha and we wanted to thank you all uh who, who did that and we wanted to thank you all personally because it was actually shocking how much stuff came in vitamin packs this, this you know all all the antivirals it got here and it got here too late to do much good only because I was so late in really announcing how sick I really was I guess so for those of you who, who did that thank you thank you's not enough so uh, I don't know the fluids was a week ago now or maybe more than that 10 days something like that um, I put up a second post saying, all right, I turned the corner here, and that's the last one that's up on Facebook and on the website, and then I'd be back in the saddle on Tuesday. I thought, okay, no problem. I've got a great, got a great topic for moving back to America. I'll go do that Tuesday morning. And um, got plenty of sleep the night before, woke up Tuesday morning at 7.30 and just said, nope, no, mm -mm, no. Um, but I uh, was up. Uh, in time to do the right angles at 10.30, and we did five shows, which is normal. I usually do the Moving Back to America plus five right angles on Tuesdays. But the five right angles I did, I did the thumbnails, put all the video links up. I got all, all that stuff done and just went home and you know, felt kind of tired. And uh, went grocery shopping that night, and I'm so used to unloading plastic bags out of the trunk of my car, you know, I do three, four at a time. Unloaded the car that night, and... and and I carried, I made two trips with two or three bags each from the, from the grocery store. And after I put those bags down, I felt like I had just, you know, just done like an Ironman car. I was just absolutely exhausted. My arms were just like lead. Oh, I better lie down. So I didn't do it Tuesday. I, I was going to try it Wednesday. Wednesday, I was shot from doing the shows on Tuesday. Uh, today's Thursday. I was going to come and do it Thursday, but uh, so Rachel has uh, has left the state and moved to greener pastures. So um, he asked me if we could do the virtue signals tomorrow, which we'll do. And since I didn't have to come in for that, I thought, you know, to hell with it. And then I thought, well, okay, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it Friday. And then I realized, you know, Friday is pretty close to next Tuesday. And why are you pushing this? You're just really just because I feel I always feel like I'm not doing enough. Always. Uh, Zoe's gone to Texas. I think he's gone to Dallas. Um, and I'll find out tomorrow when we do the virtue signal with him. Um, so I've certainly, the uh, the topic I had isn't going anywhere. I'll just give you a brief version of that for those of you who are tuned in or tuning in early. 
the one I'm going to shoot if I'm feeling up for it. I, I, I had my mouth open to say the one I'm going to shoot on Tuesday, but the one I'm going to shoot on Tuesday if I'm feeling up for it on Tuesday, uh, I'm going to call it Cerberus. And this was something I had some time to think about. You probably know that Cerberus is the mythical three-headed dog that guards the gates of hell in Greek mythology. One of the things that this COVID has done for me, and it's done quite a bit for me, first of all, it got rid of this weight that I just simply couldn't shed after three, four, five years of trying. So it, it did that. And I'm determined to keep it off because, and I've been serious about keeping it off. Uh, but one of the things it did was, first of all, it, it gave me some historical perspective. I have always read so much history and you hear, oh, here's Stanley going across Africa trying to find Livingston and he's got malaria and he's laid up for four months recovering with a fever. And I remember thinking, oh, four months with a fever, that's gotta be something. Well, now I've had, you know, three, four days with a half serious fever. And now I know what our ancestors went through and I know what these these real men went through and women too out there. <coughs> so, um, so having a fever for an, an, enough time to think that, I'll tell, I had the same experience during this, this uh, recent uh, trip to the Chinese weight loss clinic as I'd had the two times before when I'd been in severe pain, I told both of those stories that had an impacted tooth and it had a kidney stone. And the one thing that I re recognized that I had in, in this case was somewhere around day four or five and lasting up until the day after the fluids, so at least a week. I remember thinking, I cannot remember what it was like to be healthy and I cannot imagine what it would be like to be healthy. I can't remember what it was like not to be this sick and I cannot imagine what it will be like not to be this sick. Um, so uh, I just wanted to get those things in. But here's something that I learned, and, uh, and, and Phil and Bobby, when they came out to visit months ago, tried to tell me a little bit about this kind of thing, I guess, but I, I just, I didn't sense it, and I didn't have the willpower to do it. Uh, after not eating for eight or nine days, that's a, eight-day fast. I didn't have the willpower to do an eight-hour fast. Most Americans don't, and, I'm, and that's, that's what I am. But after I hadn't eaten in eight days, that was long enough for some part of my body chemistry to completely reset itself. And here's the, the thing that I learned that shook me up enough to change my mind about something that gave me the big insight that I'm going to do on this uh, Cerberus thing, which I'm about to tell you about right now. Because because I didn't eat for eight or nine days, when I finally did start eating again, I started eating the things that I had in my house. And the first thing that I wanted was this, um, was, uh, you know, Ocean Spray Cran Grape, which seemed to me to be pretty good, you know, grapefruit juice. So the day after the fluids and I was able to kind of actually sit up and drink, I poured myself a glass of this stuff and I just spit it out because it was so sweet. There was so much sugar in it. I thought, well, that's, well, it's probably just something I never really noticed. Then later that day or the next day, um, we ordered out some food for Ashton, and it turned out to be my favorite uh, chicken sandwich, which I'm not going to name the brand of. But but this is my favorite meal, right? It's just like, this is when I'm really like, oh, now, let, let's go to this chicken sandwich place, which I love. 
And so they ordered me a chicken sandwich. I took a bite out of that, and I couldn't believe how much sugar was in the bread, and I couldn't believe how much sugar was in the chicken. Now, just so you don't think I've gone all wobbly on you, um, <laughs> I've always felt that people who said there was too much sugar in things are pretty, pretty certainly communists. Uh, as a kid growing up, breakfast would be Count Chocula in chocolate milk with a couple of spoonfuls of sugar on the top. Um, and I've always looked at sugar as just kind of being my friend. And the reason that, that, that it, it always felt like my friend was you could have Count Chocula in chocolate milk, sprinkle some sugar on it, but then I would go out and I would get on my chopper, which is a uh, bike, and you can tell it's a, a pedal bike, and it tell it was a chopper because it said chopper on it and I'd go I go ride my bike for nine hours I got a chance to realize during Christmas that that for for people my age the ultimate Christmas present as a kid was a new bike how long has it been since new bike was top of the Christmas list I'd be curious to know in any event yeah of course I need a lot of sugar I need a lot of sugar and I go out and just burn it but what I didn't realize was I didn't realize how pervasive it was. And that's changed since I was a kid. Uh, not long ago, I saw a, a guy, maybe he was doing a weight loss thing, a cardiologist or something, and he said, do you ever notice the, the advertisements of the greatest generation, how the housewives are all super trim and dad is this, and they're eating whatever, they're eating cake and they're eating hot dogs, and they're not on a diet, they're not stuck on eating kale. Why is it that the greatest generation was so slim and had so much energy and wasn't on special diets, and we're all on nothing but special diets, and none of us can lose weight, and we're all tired all the time. And, 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 and the, the diabetes is going through the roof. And somebody pointed out to me once that they were very impassioned about the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So whichever type that is, it was Dr. Gundry, that's right, it was Dr. Gundry. Um, and he was saying, look, he said, there's no nutrition in our food anymore. And not only is there not much nutrition, there's a lot more sugar. And they have been putting this high fructose corn syrup in everything because it tastes good. And it does, in fact, addict you to it. When Natasha first got here, she practically couldn't, there was practically, she couldn't really, really eat anything. She said, but there's sugar in everything. And I just said what I said a second ago. Well, of course there's sugar in everything. This is, this is the fuel for the, for the, for the reactor. This is, sugar is as American as it can get. Of course you, you don't can't stand the sugar you're from Russia. That's communism, not having sugar on everything. Well, after being that sick and after having my digestive system reset enough to the point where I could actually taste not only how much sugar was in things, but much more importantly, how many things had a lot of sugar in them, I realized that all of these people who've been talking about um, big food being the enemy who I who have companies who I've always defended that those people are right and this was what led me to my major big breakthrough idea um, the there is less and less nutrition in this stuff there's more and more sugar the people who are manufacturing these foods like I'd have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich my favorite second favorite food ever I had one before I was sick. I got the Skippy Super Chunk. I got the Welch's Grape. I got the, I got the white bread. I'm good to go. 
make one and so on. No idea how I had that extra 15 pounds, but put that aside. My favorite thing, I love it. I just loved it. And, and, and I'm not talking about like 30 years ago. I mean like three weeks ago. You get yourself a nice Nestle's quick chocolate milk and you're set to go. I don't know why. I just never outgrew it. I just liked it. And I was making these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So after I got started feeling better, I said, I know, I'll have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That's what I'll do. It's one of my favorite meals. Made one of those things, and, and I just I, I just had to almost spit it out. So, people in the comment section are mentioning keto, uh, uh, ketosis uh, diet. Jeremy's one on that. Jeremy lost 20 pounds. Uh, but... He told me what it entails, and I just basically said to myself, I'm just not going to do it. It's, I'm not going to do it. I know I'm not going to do it, so there you go. So here's, here's where the sugar thing took me. And this is the basis of this Cerberus moving back to America that I want to do. So this is, my, this is my big breakthrough thinking during the th three weeks I've been out. Once I realized how much sugar was in the food we were eating, and once I realized how pervasive it was, it made me realize that the people who I had been defending, in other words, big business, were in fact what the progressives claimed they were, and that is not the slightest bit interested in your health or your nutrition, just looking for a way to sell more food. During this time that I was sick, I got um, uh, a packaged medicine and it's over here somewhere. And I also got, in fact, I need to find it. Along with the medicine, uh, uh, f friends were kind enough to send me this. Um, it's a, it's a, it's undoubtedly forbidden. Um, but it's, it's a series of, of uh, treatment papers, uh, and here it is, like iMask Plus. It says, Prevention and Early Outpatient Treatment Protocol for COVID-19, which is independent of the Victrola. And I need to find it because, I mean, it's, 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 it's very, very detailed, but one of the title pages really got through to me. Give me one second. Here it is. So this is a um, this is a uh, kind of a, a, a just a sort of a narration for the medical treatment because the medical treatment tells you what drugs you should be taking and conveniently enough also shows you groovy things like this. Now I know it's hard to see, but basically it's uh, it's not that hard to see basically says, okay, look here, at day one to day five, you're in viral replication, and then the virus starts to go down, your viral replication goes down by about day 10. But during this time, you get delayed immunity, and all the immune system grows up, and you get viral debris during that period of time. So this thing is basically saying you have to be taking different medicines at different times during this treatment phase because you got, because the virus is doing certain things, and some medicines work at this time, don't work at another time. <coughs> This is what got my attention. This is, um, this is what got my attention, this and the sugar, which happened at the same day. So on this introduction to this incredibly complex treatment plan, 
uh, is, uh, is a quote, and uh, the headline is uh, The Vacuum of Truth. So here's a quote. The first step is to give up the illusion that the primary purpose of modern medical research is to improve Americans' health most effectively and efficiently. In our opinion, the primary purpose of commercially funded clinical research is to maximize financial return on investment, not health. And the weird lunatic who wrote those insane words is a guy named John Abraham Abramson, MD, of the Harvard Medical School, which, you know, it's like one of those Topanga Canyon communes or something. But this is the part that I, that I really, really woke me up to. Uh, it goes on to say, the author, that was a quote from Abr Abramson, uh, this and the author, he says, we're living in a, through a period of time ca characterized by a vacuum of truth. Let me know if that sounds familiar. With misinformation, disinformation, blatant lies, censorship, and nefarious intentions being the order of the day, it is difficult to dissect out the actual truth and discern who to trust. Furthermore, now this is the part that got my attention. Furthermore, it is no longer controversial to acknowledge that drug makers rigorously control medical publishing and that The Lancet, the New England Journal of Medicine, and the Journal of the American Medical Association are utterly corrupted instruments of pharma. Goes on to, to so on and so on and so on. So, why is this such an earthquake for me? This is where we get to Cerberus. The three-headed dog. It's a generalization, but it's, a, it's an accurate generalization to say that for whatever reasons, and we don't need to discuss those reasons here, but for whatever reasons, people who, who become identified with conservative values are pro-business and anti-government. And people who are, who are identified with left-wing progressive values are pro-government and anti-business. I don't think that requires much more explanation, and if you think it does, then and watch some of my videos. Now, during my entire life, and in fact, probably during the entire history of progressivism and business, these two things have been natural enemies at war with each other, big business and big government. And the country has been divided between the people that support big business, who basically feel like, look, these people are providing medicines that were never here before. And, 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 and this is this billions of dollars to develop these, these medicines. And, and why don't you just leave them alone because they're providing all these big benefits? I'm a conservative. I'm back in big business. And the big government people are saying, no, 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 they're all just greedy. They just want the cash and so on. And, and, and they need to be heavily regulated and even more heavily taxed. Well, those voices were on the left the left, my left, stage left. And I would not agree with them because everything else they think is such garbage. I, so, so I fell into one of these default positions, which for a conservative is big business, good, big government, bad. Progressives have felt the exact opposite. And so for the Duration of my life, for the duration of pretty much the country, at least until modern progressive came, modern progressivism came along. You had these two circles. Okay, here's a big business circle. I want to say big business. I'm not talking about small business. I run a small business. Small business is not only the heart of this country; it's the heart of every good thing that happens in the world. I'm talking about multinational corporations. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, uh, Scott's uh, furniture store.
or smaller businesses. So these have been natural enemies, big business and big government, hating each other, fighting each other. Big business constantly saying, leave us alone so we can make some money and some products and make your life a lot better. And I'm going, yeah, well, I like the sound of that. Big government saying, no, 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 you're, you're ripping people off and you're just in it for the money and we're gonna tax you, boo. Once I realized how much food was in, how much sugar was in all the food, and once I realized how the antiviral medicines that cost next to nothing were precluded from my treatment, they were off the, they were off the table politically, this is when I realized what's actually going on in our society. Just for your, um, from this same group, of, uh, of medical doctors who are talking about a non-Victrola treatment of COVID. Here's a quote that really got me over the top. The relentless malpractice of deliberately withholding early effective COVID treatments of forcing the use of toxic remdesivir rem may have unnecessarily killed up to 500,000 Americans in hospital. That's more than we lost in World War II. That's what, that's what the, the big pharma has been fighting against because these are inexpensive drugs and the Victrolas are extremely expensive. And every Victrola dose that goes out there, they get paid. So here I am all of a sudden with this realization that no, you know, maybe, maybe the left was right about big business. I know I'm right about big government, but I'd always been on that side. So I'd always seen these two things and this is up until recently, this, is, this has been true. Big business and big government at war with each other constantly. And the referee has been the press. That's what actually works. You've got big government wanting to tax and control things. You've got big business wanting to make profits and produce things. And the press's job as referee was to look at both of these animals and find out who's lying. I'm a big business fan, but Enron, for example, are a bunch of criminals and they needed to be investigated and they needed the government to come after them and whip their butt. Likewise, big government used to be the kind of thing that the press would go after. If it turned out that you find out that there's, a, that there's an underage uh, sex ring being operated out of an island and that large numbers of very important people went there, there was a time when the press would say, we kind of like to know who those people were. So for the length of time that this country has been healthy, big business and big government, natural enemies with the press as the referee, basically trying to attack both of them. And this is when I realized that's not the case anymore. Because somewhere in here, I don't know when it happened, certainly happened by the time the COVID really hit us. But somewhere in here, we went from having three three parties that are in balance to this three-headed dog that guards the gates of hell because somewhere in this last couple years, big business and big government said, why are we fighting each other? Why are we fighting each other? If we work together, we can both get what we want. And media said, yes, that's right. We can all three get what we want. So now, instead of big government saying, no, you cannot release that uh, Victrola, now, Big government is saying, so here's the conversation, right? You got, the, you, got the, you got the big politician and you got the big businessman and they're all in this room. And they're saying, we've been fighting each other for our entire lives, but what if we don't? And then the big business guy says, well, what do you mean? He said, well, 
What if a government, which has been trying to prevent you from bringing products to the market, yeah, effing government, what if they not only didn't prevent you, what if they mandated your medicine? What if they made it a, a, a legal requirement that somebody had to buy your, your stuff? Well, we'd make a ton of money. Yeah. Well, what do you get out of it? Well, we get to tell people what to do. Okay. This is something to think about. This is something to think about. And how do you make this work? If anybody shines a light on what's actually happening, like this press is supposed to, then this collusion falls apart. But the press is in it too. And the press is morphed into big info, you know, big tech, because they control the information that always used to be the purview of the press. So now you've got this three-headed dog. You've got big business, you've got big government, and you've got the, the, the media who's supposed to be the watchdog. And they're all realizing that if they all three work together instead of opposing each other, then each one of them not only gets what they've always wanted, they get much, much more of what they've always wanted. We're not only going to not, we're not only, as government, we're not only going to stop blocking you in terms of the products you want to release, we're going to make it the law that people have to buy those products. You're going you're gonna to make people legally required to buy our stuff? Yeah, that's what we're going to do. Well, that's different. What do you get out of it? We get to tell people what to do. And we get to use this crisis in order to increase our power. You're interested in money. We're interested in power. The media is interested in control. Everybody wins. I'm not saying there was a room that this happened in, but there might have been. What I am saying is, is that it took the realization of the amount of sugar in all of our foods for me to come out of my big business auto reflex defense because I'm a conservative defending business and capitalism. It took that to kick me out of it enough to realize, no, 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 no. What the progressives say about big business is right. I don't think the progressives are at this point yet, but somewhere along the line, the progressives are also going to realize that what we say about big government is also right. And now you get to something that's actually really kind of interesting because now you have an entirely different board. Alliances that used to make sense, if this theory of mine is true, and it is, then all the alliances that used to make sense don't make sense anymore. Find that you could be as conservative as it's possible to get and agree with progressives on certain issues because the stuff has changed. It's morphed and become this horrible three-headed hound that's keeping all of us down and taking all of our money and our freedom. Everybody wins for them. Media gets to, media gets to determine the narrative and be, the, be the, 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 the good guys in their own minds. Businesses get to make as much money as they want to, and government gets to seize power and hold on to it. So what does that leave us with? Well, it leaves us with us against them. I mean, it's really that simple now. And um, yeah, <laughs> Helios 1776. By the way, this message has been brought to you by Pfizer. Um, once I realized that, that big government and big 
and big business were no longer at war with each other, but were actually cooperating. And when I realized how much extra, how much orders of magnitude, more of what both sides wanted, they would get, how much more money they would make if the government, instead of trying to stop them, made people buy their stuff, how much more power there would be. If through the media, we were able to say that if you don't have this stuff, you're going to die. And so do what we tell you, because otherwise, you know, you don't want to die, do you? And there it is. And, and I, I have just realized that it's not that I was wrong or that you were wrong. It's that something fundamentally changed. And this is why I couldn't understand exactly what's been going on for, for a while. But that's not me being wrong about things. It's not you being wrong about things. Something changed. And what changed was big business and big government stopped being enemies and started working together and pulled the media in instead of being a referee, made them the conduit, made them the, 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 um, the, the information bus that allowed one side to talk to each other and then get the story out to the people. And all three of them now are just sitting there and and they're rolling in everything they want. And if we didn't understand that, and I didn't, then we can't fight it. But when we do understand it, then we can fight it. Anyway, that's, um, that's that. So <coughs> looking forward to uh, basically doing, um, doing that on Tuesday, hopefully, and getting it a little, little more down. Um, and of course, you throw in the Chinese and their interests, and 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 guys like Bill Gates. People wonder why Bill Gates. Uh, you know, why why are people so suspicious about Bill Gates? Have anything to do with them talking about having to reduce the population significantly prior to all of this happening? So, vacuum of truth—that's the term. And and when I realized that 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 when I saw it. it it's not like I'm unaware of the fact that the that the that the Victrolas are being manufactured by Big Pharma. It's just I had to see it in writing, and what really, the actual thing that pulled the trigger in my head that got me thinking differently was the line about the journals having been corrupted for quite a long time now. Once I heard that, I thought, okay, this is this is it. Once I realized that they were willing to admit that, that the that, that doctors were willing to admit that the bastions of medical integrity had been corrupted, that was that's when the, the handcuffs came off. Um, so anyway, that's um, that's what I've been thinking about, and that's what I'm going to be talking about, uh, and um, we'll see. Uh, I might add at this point, as James O'Keefe did, having recently dropped the documents that proved that Dr. Fauci was a liar, um, then I love my life and I'm very, very happy. Uh, and I haven't had a suicidal thought ever. And by the way, if it used to be press as the watchdog, big government and big media, these would be three separate circles. And I've been talking about the overlap of big business and big government, but now you bring in media and now you have a Venn diagram that has an overlap between big government and big business, big government and big tech, big tech and big business, big media if you want. And I realized that right smack in the center of these three overlapping circles, right dead center of them, sits Anthony Fauci, who is big business and big government and big media. 
He's all three. That's the spindle that things turn around. So. Eli says this rod is extensive and deep and, and uh, in more fields than you think. Yes, it's everywhere. Um, so when you hear about things like, well, I mean, you know, not only did I vote for Mitt Romney, I, I did my best to get him elected. Mitt Romney's not on my team. And he hasn't ever been on my team. My problem, and it's probably your problem too, is my problem is I have a fundamental, enough of a fundamental soul and character to be unable to process the fact that there are people out there that would commit these kind of crimes on this level just for money or power. I still can't, I still can't get my head around that. I can't, I can't get my heart around it. I think my head's starting to figure it out. But it's, it's, just, it's just inconceivable to me that half a million people might die because some people wanted power and other people wanted money. It's inconceivable how... how, how, how uh, when Natasha first came over, she was talking about how naive Americans were. She loves America. And by the way, her citizenship test which was scheduled for somewhere during the last couple of whatever nightmares is scheduled for end of January. Um, but she said, you know, you Americans are you're just so naive. And I said, well, honey, you know, Russians are just real cynical. And the truth is somewhere between these two. But um, all of this stuff, you know, oh, the secret government and all this, I'm like, come on. And then you see James Comey and you see the FBI inventing the Russia story and you see the collusion with the Clintons and you see Epstein commit suicide during a 12-minute video blackout. And then you realize, no, there's, this, is, there's, this is evidence. It's monumental evidence. The evidence is so big we don't even see it. It's so enormous that we can't even see the evidence. <sighs> anyway, that. now... You would think it would be a good time to take questions, but there's something else I want to talk about, and it's got nothing to do with politics. It just I just want to talk about it. Uh, so, cut, right? Fade to black, roll credits, tail credits, new episode, head, head credits. <coughs> there are a couple things that have interested me my whole life. And they tend to have a similar sort of quality. They have to be relatively big, something that you know that is that has got some kind of significance. And they have to be mysteries. Not, not when I say mysteries, I don't even mean so much intentionally hidden stuff, so much as just there's a lot to them. One of the great examples of the things that I've always been interested in was the Titanic. And I read A Night to Remember by Walter Lord. And so there was a period of time when I did just a super, super deep dive on the Titanic. When I say it, that's kind of an interesting turn of phrase for the Titanic. But there was a period there when I, when I get, when I get my, a hook in my mouth, I will read everything that is available. So I read everything there was on the Titanic, and I wouldn't, 
I would call myself a Titanic, an amateur Titanic expert. I can tell you what Lightoller did, and I can give you a pretty good idea of, you know, the idea that, you know, you would starboard the rudder because this is just before the wheels were overtaking tillers and, you know, all of it. So I've always been interested in the Titanic, and, and, and when information about the Titanic came out, that was great. I'd always been interested in Shakespeare, and we talked about how uh, a couple of years ago, I guess now, I'd seen a documentary that was really convincing that the works of William Shakespeare were actually written by um, Edward de Vere, 16th Earl of Oxford. So I did a super deep dive into that. Now that one fell apart the second I started diving deep into it. I've been interested in, in a number of odd things, and, and, and I have been interested in them in, for a long, long time. One of the things that I've been interested in was Jack the Ripper. Now, some of you watching this undoubtedly are, are advanced Ripperologists. Uh, I would never call myself that, but I had always been interested in it because it has been 120 plus years. And for 120 plus years, people have been wondering, who was this guy? Well, I'd read a number of books, The Kennedy Assassination, another one that I just really just read all these competing theories, and then I read a book called Case Closed, and then, okay, that's, that's overwhelming, overwhelming explanation, um, which was that Lee Harvey Oswald shot John F. Kennedy. Uh, so a number, I'd seen, read a number of books, seen a number of documentaries, questioning who Jack the Ripper really was. I mean, he's so pervasive in our culture that there was a Star Trek episode that had Jack the Ripper in it, that he was a force of evil that could transmit, it was called Wolf in the Fold, I think. And, um, and he was able to travel through space and time and just inhabit bodies and get them to murder people. Hang on a second, there's just huge coming here. Yes talking about fixing the world on an individual level, yes. So, I'd always been interested in Jack the Ripper, and there'd been a number of theories, and, and, and I'd looked at them, you know, one of them was the, one of the, you know, extra sons of the king, one of the princes, maybe it was even the Prince of Wales who was insane, or, or it was this guy, or it was this guy, or it was this guy known as Leather Apron, or it was this pole named Kozlowski, or whatever, and they just, all of these things, they're making good cases for, for them, that's what People do when they write books, but all of them, um, all of them, are doing what they did with the Shakespeare author question, and that is picking things, putting them in a line to say that this is what we think is true, and leaving out large amounts of other things. So yesterday, I'm sitting there thinking, man, I should be working, but I'm tired. So I actually flipping through YouTube like I always do. And I saw a video documentary titled um, Jack the Ripper, The Missing Evidence. I saw it about, I, I saw the link five days ago and I said, I'm not in the mood for this. I'm just not in the mood for another one of the, oh, look what we found. We found a, a, a broken pencil nub, you know, therefore, you know, the guy who wrote the From Hell letter, you know, th th this kind of thing, this kind of, this, this kind of thing that, is, that was started with that god-awful show In Search Of, which would just throw 
garbage in the air. And that's what I thought we were going to get. I thought it was, a document, it was another one of these garbage documentaries about how somebody's analyzed the handwriting of, of Jack the Ripper, and it turns out that it's the same handwriting as the Duke of Austria, and blah, 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 blah. That's, you know, okay, fine. So I just ignored it. And then I looked at it again, and I realized it was from the Smithsonian Channel, which is like the journals. The Smithsonian Institution's also gotten a little bit corrupted. So is National Geographic. But Smithsonian Channel is, is relatively, is relatively, you know, credible. Because I know people that have things hanging in the Smithsonian Institute. And uh, Phil and I have been there, and we saw the whole thing in, what was it, 17 or 18 minutes? ran through there because it was about to close. We're running down the Washington Monument, running down the stairs, couldn't stop. <laughs> we got down 25, 30 floors of running down the Washington Monument on the staircase. And we realized that the muscles that push you up the stairs are much stronger than the muscles that bring you down. And anyway, um, here we go. So, so I thought, well, what the hell, I'll watch it. Now, the first thing about it was that it had excellent graphics. But here's the thing. I want to make sure I get his name right. A Swedish author, I want to say. Give me one second, kids. Give me one second. Uh, a Swedish author whose name is, I want to say, Christian Hang on now. Here we go. I want to get his name right because he's very impressive. Christer, Christer Holmgren, thank you. Christer Holmgren is a, is a Swedish journalist, and he'd been fascinated by the Ripper for 30 years. And as a journalist, in his spare time, he'd been trying to solve the mystery because he was convinced that, obviously, the murders were, com were committed by somebody. And somewhere in there, there's got to be a trail. Now, I recently did a lot of research on something I've been doing my entire life, and I've been looking for since the internet has been there, and I found what I was looking for, and, and I've, I've, I never, I'm not going to tell the story, it's, 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 it's not worth telling, but nevertheless, I've been searching for decades, and finally found it, and there's that moment that I've, when I went, keep going back and keep hitting the same brick wall, and then there was that one moment when I found one piece of evidence, and that piece of evidence did the rest. But here's what here's what this guy Christer Holgen Holgen did. He he basically looked at all of the source material, and he did something else. He basically said, "What do we know about modern serial killers?" And one of the qualities of modern serial killers is that they blend into their environment, and that's one of the reasons they get away with it as long as they do, is that they blend into the environment. Jeffrey Dahmer was just an ordinary looking guy. You know, he didn't go didn't have tattoos of, you know, demons on his face. Uh, Ted Bundy was, by all accounts, a perfectly charming, intelligent, funny guy when he's not ripping people to shreds and so on. So, so, 
this was one of his conditions for Jack the Ripper. He said, why don't we treat Jack the Ripper as if he was a modern serial killer and see what qualities modern serial killers have. Traumatic childhood, uh, uh, as I mentioned, blending with the crowd, un unordinary in every way, and especially a familiarity with a, with a hunting ground. They have a territory that's their comfort zone. So he started looking at all this stuff. And then I'm going to, I'm going to throw it. I'm going to include a link to the documentary on YouTube in the link here on, on, for the stratosphere lounge. And so I am just going to compress for you what this Christopher Holgram came up with. And then I'll add my own little embellishments and then we'll see if I can do some questions. So what Holmgren did was he looked at the original police reports, the source reports, and he found that on the very first murder, and I used to know this too, uh, Marianne Nichols, Polly, Marianne uh, Nichols, otherwise known as Polly. So the first Ripper murder, there are, there are five so-called canonical murders. These are five murders that, that virtually everybody who studied the J Jack the Ripper story agree were committed by the same person. They're not in agreement on who that person was, but it turns out there were actually 11 women murdered in Whitechapel area within the space of just a short period of time. And the question is, how many of them could we confidently say were the result of, of, of one guy, whoever that guy is? So over the course of 120 years of research, there, there has come to a general conclusion that there were five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper that everybody can agree on because the modus operandi were, was essentially identical. And the first one of them was uh, this woman I just mentioned, um, uh, Polly. Come on, Bill. Uh, Marianne Nichols, Polly Nichols. So here's, here's what... Um, I'm just going to call her Polly from now on. Here's what, here's what uh, Christopher Holgan discovered. He went back and read the original police reports. And on the original police report, this is the first canonical victim. There are others that might have been him, but this is the first one that everybody can agree was him. So, so Polly was found in a, in a long, dark alleyway called Buck Row. And... What he found from the inquest was that this first victim, everybody knew that this first victim had not been particularly badly mutilated compared to the later victims. She had the same sort of, um, uh, you know, MO for, for, for the death, but compared to later victims, she was not particularly badly mutilated, although she'd been stabbed a number of times and her throat cut so deep that it went right down to the vertebrae. So... He's looking at the source interviews during the inquest, and it turns out that the policeman, who was the first one to discover the body, I want to say his name was Neil, Police Constable Neil. He was the first policeman on the scene of the body, but he wasn't the first person on the scene. He was the first policeman. What the original um, inquest showed was that a, a cartman named, um, named Charles Cross, gave his name as Charles Cross, was going down um, Buck Row and saw something he thought was a canvas tarpaulin or something. 
It turned out, it, when he went over and looked at it more closely, it was, it was a body of a woman. Another guy is coming down this alley, a guy named Paul, I want to say. Uh, when I say he's a cartman, what, what that is is he's a delivery guy. He's a, he's a UPS driver. And this being Victorian England, he had to be at work at 4 o'clock in the morning in order to start delivering what he was delivering, and I'll get to that in a minute. So it turns out the second person on the scene was this guy whose last name was Paul. And Paul's walking down the alley, and he sees this guy, Charles uh, Cross. And Charles Cross says, hey, there, I, I thought this was a, a bundle of rags or something, but, I, but there's a woman here. I think she may be, I may, may be dying or dead. So these two guys, uh, Paul and, and Cross, look down at the body and say, we, we got to go find a policeman. So off they go. So they find a policeman working a beat. His name is something like Messier, something like Metzer, something close to that. And they say, and, and Cross, who was the original guy in the alley, walks up to the policeman and says, listen, uh, I don't know if it's serious or not, but we, I just found a, a, what I thought was a bunch of cloth lying on the ground. Turns out it's a woman. Uh, she's either very, very drunk or, or dead. We both took a look at her, and, and, and we don't know which, but you probably should go over there. And here's the critical point. This is the reason that there's a Jack the Ripper mystery. He said, uh, there, uh, there's a police officer on the scene, and he just sent us over to, to, to find some help. So this second police officer who's some distance away, my medicine religious miser, I should know, says, okay, thank you. Let's him go, goes over there, finds this other police officer, Neil, who's already standing over the body, and off we go. Now, here's what... Here's what they discovered. And, and you need to see the whole documentary. But basically, this guy Cross had lied when he said that there's a police officer there who sent us looking for you. And we know he lied because Paul didn't back up that story. In one of the weird little coincidences, strokes of luck, little... These are the things that fascinate me, and I never get rid of these, these pivots of history where it's, it's one tiny little thing. Cross told the policeman that there was another policeman on the scene already, but he was lying because there wasn't another policeman on the scene already. But, but, by the time he was telling this lie to this police officer, this other police officer had independently discovered the body and was on the scene so that when the police officer that Cross talked to got to the murder scene, there was, in fact, another police officer there. Now, that's just plain coincidence and luck on the part of this guy, Cross, because he said that a policeman sent him, because if he doesn't say that, the police officer who he's looking with, and he wouldn't go looking for a police officer, but he's got this guy, Paul, with him, if he goes up to a police officer and says, hey, we think there's a dead body over there, the police officer can say, come with me. But if he says, look, we, we're, we're late for work, there's a police officer sent us looking for you, there's a dead body, you need to go talk to this police officer, this is the lie he told to get out of it. And it turned out that this lie became true by accident. By accident, it became true. And because the second policeman, this miser guy, gets to the scene of the crime and sees that Neil has independently arrived at the scene, he doesn't for a second think that this guy Cross was lying because here's the policeman that, that he claimed was already on the scene. 
So, it turns out that uh, that this guy Cross came forward when Paul came forward. Paul was also a carpenter. This is the second guy on the scene, not the police officer. Cross was the guy who, who first said he saw a tarpaulin in the alley. And down Buck Row, here comes Paul. Now, that end of Buck Row is lit by a single gas lamp, but where Cross is, it's damn near pitch black. So, Paul, walking down Buck Row, sees nothing but darkness ahead, but Cross, looking back the other direction, can see and hear a man walking because he's got hard sole shoes like everybody else in Victoria and England, and he's walking on cobblestones. So when Paul says, yeah, I found him, me and another Cartman found him, this guy Cross steps forward and says, yeah, I was the guy, and he tells this whole story that I just told you. Okay, thank you for your testimony. Off you go. This is the first victim. Well, there's no Charles Cross. It's a, it's a fake name. And uh, the person who gave the fake name gave the fake name because he was the person who murdered that woman. And he had murdered her. And there was not a lot of blood on the scene. There were no blood on the hands of Cross or Paul. But the reason there was not a lot of blood on the scene was because when Paul came down Buck Row, the so-called Cross guy realized he had just killed her. He had just killed her, and since he had choked her to death, when he cut her throat, there was not a lot of blood. There was no arterial blood because her heart wasn't beating anymore. He, there were wounds on the on the on this first victim on Polly that were choke wounds. So he choked her to death, and after she's dead, he slits her throat, starts stabbing her, and then he looks down the alleyway and sees this guy Paul coming. So now he's he's in a real pickle, and he and he's thinking fast. He's probably gave this a lot of thought in advance. He says, oh, hey, I'm so glad you're here. I've just found, I thought it was a pile of rags, but it turns out the body, I don't know if she's dead, I don't know if she's drunk, whatever. So now he does the whole thing that I just told you about. Well, there is no Charles Cross, and, and researchers in 2004 are looking for Charles Cross, but there is no Charles Cross. However, Charles Allen Cross, I think, was the name he gave uh, in, um, in the uh, inquest. He had to come forward because otherwise they would be looking for the other Cartman. Because the first Cartman testified, I wasn't the first person to see it. There was another Cartman who found it first. So he comes forward and tells his little story. Thank you for your testimony. Disappears. Researchers, amateurs, ripperologists in 2004 are looking through the address that he gave for his, for his residence. And it turns out there was no Charles Cross living there at the address that he gave. There was no Charles Allen Cross. There was, however, a Charles Allen Lechmere. And this Charles Allen Lechmere, being a, a cartman, had to leave work. He had to be there at 4 a.m. And that meant he had to leave his house at about 3, 3.15. And these people in this documentary took a look at the route from where he lived to where he worked. And remember, he's got to make this trip every day at about 3.15 in the morning.
They took a look at where he lived and where he worked, and then they figured out, just like GPS on your car, what are the two fastest, most direct routes there? There's this one, and then there's one where we divert a little bit, which is marginally longer, but practically the same amount of time. And it turned out that three of the canonical murders happened not within a quarter mile of the route, not within a hundred yards of the route. Three of the canonical murders happened within 10 yards of this route, something like that. I mean, right on the route. So then uh, two of the canonical murders are further to the south. Well, all right, so what does that mean? It's, it's certainly evidence that seems to exculpate this guy, Lechmere. Well, it turns out that the two murders that occurred off of his route occurred within a couple hundred yards of where his mother lived, continued to live, and he had spent most of his life living with his mother. His daughter and his mother were still living there. And the two times that, this, that these murders occurred off of the route were two times that would have been his day off, which would have been Saturday night. In other words, he could have gone to visit his mother, and, and, and he knew that area even better than the area he knew that he grew up in. So you have a triangle between where he was living, where he was working, and where he used to live with his mother. And all of the canonical murders happened inside this triangle, and, and three of them happened with, within a few yards of his route to work. That's pretty compelling evidence, and it turns out that that these researchers were able to place this guy, Lechmere, within 10 minutes of all five of these canonical murders. So, Christer, who's doing this research, says, either this is Jack the Ripper or he's the unluckiest man in the world because he is passing the murder scene of the five canonical murders within a half an hour of the estimated time of death. So, Charles Allen Lechmere. I have his photograph, which I will show you now. This was him in his 70s, years after the last of the murders happened, years after. He uh, was able to get himself a portrait, photographic portrait made. Now, let me, I'll come back to this, but I'll just get rid of it for a second. These are the kind of things that I just love. I just, I just love these kind of things. <clears throat> so, we find in the end of this documentary, what is it that Charles Allen Lechmere actually delivered? He was a cartman, he was a delivery guy. What was it that he actually delivered? He delivered meat to butcher shops from a central warehouse. He delivered meat, mutton or whatever, to various butcher shops in the area. That was his job, which meant that every single night that he went to work, he'd be covered in an apron that was covered in blood. You didn't just chuck it in the washing machine, right? This is Victorian England. So you've got a guy who is this is the point. It's not a guy who was seen leaving the scene of the crime with a bloody apron and it turned out he's a meat delivery guy. What it means is, is that every single night during those years, the meat delivery guys were wearing bloody 
aprons the whole time. Now, there's some talk about a, one of the suspects is called Leather Apron. I don't think we're talking about the same guy. In fact, I'm virtually sure we're not. But my point is this. this now, now we come to my speculation. And my speculation is, is not about the, 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 the actual uh, murder, because I'm, I think this case is, sol is solved. I'll show you the link to the video, and you can tell me. By the way, in the video, they take the evidence. This, this guy, um, Christopher Holgren, had gotten in touch with a former murder uh, the, the detective uh, in Sussex or something. He was the former head of the uh, homicide division. And these two together did the research and started walking out the times. And he said he was here at 335, but he was actually there at 307 because they walked the distance from the house to the, to all these, all these locations still exist. So he's, so he's found this suspect and, and they took the evidence and presented it to a, an English barrister, Queens barrister, top level lawyer. And he took a look at it. It's the kind of guy who decides whether or not to prosecute cases today. And he personally took a look at it and said, without question, there's enough evidence here for us to, to bring this to trial. Without question. If, we, if, if this evidence had happened today, we have enough evidence here to go to trial and, and probably get a conviction. That's how strong the argument was. So then I started looking at it and thinking, okay, um, so this is, J John Pershing just beat me to it. Have I seen a counter argument? This was my first thought after putting the documentary down was, all right, well, they made a real compelling case for Edward De Beer too, but, you know, turned out that was just really hollow. So what could be wrong with this case? And I thought, okay, when I look at what they presented for De Vere as the author of William Shakespeare's works, they would say things like, there's only six extant signatures of Shakespeare and they're barely legible. It's obviously the hand of a guy who's barely literate. Well, it turned out that he had to sign in little boxes and Shakespeare was four or something of those signatures were on his last will and testament. He's on, his, he's on death's door. A little tiny little window on this document that he had to sign. Well, uh, well, Shakespeare's daughters were known to be illiterate and that's inconceivable. Yeah, that's right. How could Shakespeare's daughters be illiterate? Can't be, can't be William of Avon of Stratford. All women were illiterate at that time. All of them. Women didn't go to, they just didn't go to school. And so all of the things that, that they were making the case for De Vere on had a perfectly reasonable explanation. And the evidence for William of Stratford is overwhelming. He was called by name. He's mentioned in, it's just overwhelming. They left that out of the documentary. Now, so I started applying that same kind of thinking to this particular documentary in this kind of case. What is the actual evidence? But in this case, they've got a confirmed address three. And, and when you see the actual graphics and you realize how directly on that route this is, that's awfully compelling evidence. The fact that he's a butcher, or at least works for a butcher, is compelling evidence. There are a number of the people said, oh, no, the, the person who did this dismembered the joints in such a way must have been a surgeon. A surgeon or, or a butcher, or uh, what was known as a knocker, or knacker, guy who collected dead animals. Victorian England was a, London was a lovely place. So, this is, here's, Here's the, the speculation that I had. If I told you 
at the beginning, and I should have, if I told you at the beginning of this little rant, to imagine Jack the Ripper, what would you think of? You would think about what you've ever seen in every single movie, which would be a tall guy in a cloak with a top hat and a cane, because we've always assumed that Jack the Ripper was a doctor. And therefore, all of these Ripper theories, virtually all of them, assumed that it was a guy who was, if not an aristocrat, at least certainly a gentleman, and that it was a gentleman walking through the streets of Whitechapel, stalking these women, finding them alone, and murdering them. And that image of the, of the outline and the shadow of the top hat and the cloak and the walking stick, that outline has been so pervasive that it locks out other candidates that are much, much, much better targets. Because a gentleman with a top hat and a cane walking through the streets of Whitechapel at 3.30 in the morning attracts attention. And one of the qualities about this was nobody could figure out who did it, meaning the person who did it was a person who would not attract attention. And this guy was a person who not only would not attract attention, he wouldn't attract attention if he had blood on him. And this is my part of, of the speculation, is that, is that we locked ourselves out of it because of this, it had to be a doctor. No, it didn't. The, the, the thing that, that, that they didn't mention, at least in the documentary, I've ordered the guy's book, which should get here tomorrow. But, but the thing that's not mentioned is, is that if this guy, uh, Lechmere is the guy, and I'm utterly convinced he is, this is something they didn't mention at all. Five canonical murders, right? That makes us think that Jack the Ripper was out on five nights. But if it was this guy, this was a guy who was out there every night, six days a week. He was out there six days a week, walking the exact same route at 3.30 in the morning, right around the time of all these murders. He was as well known to these prostitutes as any other family members. It's not just a question of did he stumble, this is my speculation now, it's not just a question of did he stumble upon these people. If he's working at four o'clock and he's have to leave his house at 3.15 for this 45 minute walk, and along this walk are all of the murders except for the two that happened right next to his mother's house, then that means that every single night he's out there, he's known to everybody, and furthermore, he knows who these prostitutes are, and he's probably known who they are for months, if not years. So this idea that it's a nobleman who gets into a carriage and sneaks into this low-rent neighborhood and then finds this target of opportunity and commits this horrible murder, well, no. It's a guy who's, who's on the streets every single night, and when he thinks he's found a target and the coast is clear, he, off he goes. I think, having seen that documentary and, and trying to find holes in it, the, the, the circumstantial evidence and the, and the exculpt, and not exculpatory, the whole idea of him being a common guy who was on the streets every night who was covered in blood, that, that pretty much sold me. Um, really pretty much sold me. This guy had a family, by the way, I think he had 11 kids. This picture of him was taken in his 70s. Oops. Uh, 
and um, I'll scale it down a little bit. And by the time he's in his 70s, there haven't been any of these murders for what, 30 years, something like that. Now, I'm not going to... Yes, I am. There's something about this guy that just I don't like. I, I, I don't like... There's something about the expression that's got a certain amount of cruelty to it. Um, people didn't smile much in Victorian... Uh, times when they were being photographed didn't smile at all in fact it was considered to be frivolous but something about that guy and again this is not what jack the ripper looked like that's what jack the ripper looked like 30 or 40 years after the murders happened murders were 18 late 1800s late 1880s and that that guy died in 1920 so here's a guy who's got a photograph taken of him 30 or 40 years after the last, at least the last of these known murders. And I'm convinced, for those of you that are interested in, in this subject, I am convinced, I, I, I can be unconvinced, but I consider the, the evidence to be overwhelming that that is Jack the Ripper, that that is who it is. And that after 120 years of wandering and wandering and and speculation and, and hundreds, literally hundreds of candidates, I'm convinced that that's the guy. Um, and uh, and uh, this journalist, Christopher Holgan, is also interested in the fact that there were uh, a, a number of other murders called the, the the Thames Torso murders. In addition to the five canonical Ripper victims, there were two women that were killed before the first of the canonical victims. She was, she had, one of them was almost certainly not Jack the Ripper. She lived long enough to say it was a bunch of kids, teenage gang. But there was one before Polly who had her throat slit and who also was exactly the same type. They said, though, there, were, there wasn't enough um, mutilation for been Jack the Ripper, but, you know, it's his first time at bat, right? Uh, and he might have been disturbed. He was certainly disturbed on the night of what they call the double event because there was a murder. These were the two nights. Th th this was the night that went, happened down by his mom's place. This woman is killed, and then somebody comes on the scene quickly, and he has to leave. So that body's not terribly mutilated, and he goes and finds another one that same evening, considerable distance away, but that second body as well is right 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 on his route so i don't know for me this jack the ripper has always been this missing face and i've always wanted to know who it was and i'm convinced and i think you probably will be too that that's the guy he's the guy who did it that's jack the ripper he not only killed those five women in brutal fashion he may very well have killed a number of others as well maybe five or six others that are that are murders that happened at the same time in more or less the same manner they're not considered canonical because maybe the 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 you know the bodies were sectioned up or or whatever but that's assuming that 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 he doesn't change over time it doesn't matter um he he seems to be the candidate. The question is, uh, Bart, uh, Bart's treasure has asked a bunch of times, a bunch of people have asked, well, why did he stop? <clears throat> <coughs> the, 
One reason is he might have moved. Serial killers have a, a comfort zone. One reason might be that the last of the canonical victims was the only one that happened indoors. He had a room. He got. He went to the, to this prostitute's room, and what he did to her is beyond imagination. It's just. It's just beyond imagination because that was the only one of the five canonical murders that was inside a tiny little room, set back in a in a, in a backyard someplace. Once she's dead, she can't scream. There's curtains on the windows, and he took a knife and spent probably three or four hours carving her in little pieces. And and so maybe that was maybe that was enough. I personally think that the guy Hold, Holgram says in the in the documentary that this guy um, Lechmere came from a broken home, didn't know his father, had a mother who was sleeping around with a lot of different guys, a number of abusive stepfathers. And I'm curious to know how old his mother was at the time of the murders, because you could make a pretty compelling case that that's basically who he was trying to kill and why. Um, he lived with his mother until he was in his 30s or something, maybe a little earlier, uh, and um, went on to have 11 children. But um, he... Uh, he stopped. The murder stopped. The Zodiac murders stopped too. He never caught the Zodiac killer. It's possible that he, um, it's possible that he'd had enough. It's possible that he realized how close he was getting. Certainly in the case of the first murder, the one that this whole documentary is predicated on, he's lying to save his life. He's, 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 He's trying to get out of there. There's cases where um, one of these murders, as I mentioned, the woman was murdered in the same fashion, but not particularly badly mutilated by the standards of some of the others. That was clearly a second case where he was discovered a person with a push cart came through a completely different murder now. So he was all amped up for that night. So since the first one, basically, he didn't get to have his fun, he went and did the second one, and that's called the double event. <coughs> anyway... Uh, the reason I, think, I guess that this interests me is because uh, I don't know if it's been posted yet. I did a, uh, I did one of my right angles this week called "Extracting History." Is that released yet? Let me see. Let me find out. No, it's not. Uh, it, it'll be released in the next day or two. So for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, you're probably already seen it. But uh, my members show that I did on Tuesday. It was called Extracting History, and I did it based on the fact that um, that there's a, a, that computer processing, artificial intelligence, AI, is able to take existing footage, not talking about CGI now, we're not talking about creating new footage. Artificial intelligence algorithms are able to look at existing film footage and interpolate things that weren't actually on the footage. And I happen to have, although I don't know if I can fast forward them, uh, I wanted to cover this because I saw, I saw this clip on YouTube um, here. I know I, I've got one I can certainly show you. 
So I did this piece called Extracting History, and I did it because uh, this, a number of people, I've seen a number of people do it. Um, but uh, they, um, they were able to take existing Apollo footage and the AI was able to add actual detail. It, it looked at the frames before and after, and the AI was able to not only sharpen the image and get rid of all of the stuttering. So the images of, of, of Apollo missions, I think they were generally running the cameras at 12 frames per second. They were shooting film. Uh, they had TV cameras, but the high quality stuff was film. So they had to, so they had to get it down to, you know, make the film last longer. They were shooting, they were shooting the, the, the rover stuff at about 12 frames per second. Um, here's a clip from this guy who did the image processing on it. It's in it's in the my it's in my right angle about to come. Uh, I've originally saw the one on Apollo 14, but that's got like three minutes of the actual landing, which looks great. But I'm not going to put you through that because not everybody's a, uh, that much of a fan. But there is a here. I do have the still that I use for the thumbnail somewhere. Hang on a second. Um, because because of the quality. You're, you're able act, to actually see things that weren't visible before. Come on now, computer got shut down. Hang on, it's worth the wait, this one. That's not it. Um, all right. Anyway, here, here's what I'll show you. Uh, if I can find it. This is footage from Apollo 16. Um, it's footage that eventually got known as the Grand Prix because it was a, a they, they'd had a rover on Apollo 15, but on Apollo 16, they decided to see what the rover was really capable of. So here it is. So this is footage that has been up-resed, converted to 60 frames a second, and then um, enhanced by uh, the artificial intelligence algorithm, which is pretty cool. So there's the um, there's the rover. John Young is driving that Max and uh, Charlie Duke oh. is the guy talking. Man, you are really bouncing. Look how sharp that is. Is he on the ground at all? Yeah. Ten kilometers. Huh? He's got about two wheels on the ground. By the way, the best evidence is simply stepping out of all four wheels. I think we didn't go to the moon. One question would be, if we're going to fake it, why do we have to fake it six times a second? The question would be, if you're going to fake it, how come you want to put a studio big enough to drive a rover around for hours? And the third question is that what you see in this particular footage is visible in all of the Apollo footage, but especially clear in this footage. And that is that watch the dust. Watch the dust come off of the wheels. That is what dust does in a vacuum. Dust in 
Earth atmosphere puts up a cloud, but dust in a vacuum behaves like water because there's no air to suspend the microscopic dust particles. That last little bit of what looked like gray water spilling over the rear wheels is only capable of happening inside a vacuum. And here's the thing that some people will simply not believe but is in fact true. The biggest, um, the biggest uh, vacuum we have on Earth is a massive vacuum. And it's um, probably wide enough just to get the line, just barely. And it is, it's like incredibly heavily due to reinforced concrete, and it is because the pressure is so great that they could only get a, essentially a, a, a bank vault sized area. There's nothing but reinforced concrete, they could only get that into a vacuum. So in order for this video to be showing the dust the way that it does, this entire sound stage has to be in a vacuum. And it is much, much, much harder to go and create a vacuum sound stage this size than it is to go to the moon. In fact, it's impossible by our modern technology to build a stage this size that's a, that's a complete vacuum. Uh, it's it just, just not possible. So, and, and for people who say computer graphics, also, again, easier to go to the moon. Okay, uh, In fact, utterly impossible on. to do this computer graphics because simply okay, just don't have it. It just wasn't there. It wasn't even close to being there. Going to the moon meant rockets, but, you know, you can get rockets. Since the reaction in real time has been so good to this, I will show you the other one I had. Whoops, not him. Which one is Jack the Ripper? That's for you to decide. Here's the Apollo 14 footage. Uh, I don't know how to speed this up, but I'm going to show it to you anyway. Um, and the reason uh, that I don't know how to speed it up is that I think the first few minutes of it is the landing. But the reaction has been uh, so good live that we'll, um, we'll look at the uh, landing. So this is the landing um, sequence for Apollo 14 with audio. Uh, and um, again, this footage has been taken from the original footage and uplift. Okay. Uh, 60 meters. And it looks good from here. 
Looks good from here. Okay, Al, you're through 550 feet. Okay. 16 feet per second, 500 feet, 15 feet per second. It looks good. Your fuel is good at 10%. Okay, let's take it over and move okay. up a Okay, yeah, I think so. You're through 320 got my attention is actually right after this clip like I said I don't know how to I can't fast forward through this but this this shot of the of the limb just takes a minute or two right after this is footage again that's been upresed by the AI it's footage of Alan Shepard with the flag and that's um, uh, Ed Mitchell I think uh, is the other astronaut but the footage you're about to see it it's not going to be long is uh, is is so good looking that it makes me think that it can't be real, but I suspect that the effect it will have on young people is just the opposite. Um, the footage that's going to come after this clip, this is uh, Ed Mitchell coming down on Apollo 14, uh, is has been sharpened by the computer to the degree that it looks like it was shot with an iPhone. And that is what I saw that got me to the point where I wanted to talk about this. Give me a mark. Roger out. 
Okay. That's just mind blowing. Roger, that's a good sight. I'm going to let this run out uh, because after this one shot is the liftoff from the lunar surface and that is absolutely incredible and after that we'll we'll get back to live video. Okay, that's good. Stay with us because the uh, the liftoff from the lunar surface upresed is absolutely sh just mind-boggling. Apples, Indiana, but that was my line. TV cable out. Uh, watch the TV cable. Back up. Yes, man, cable both. Got them both. Back up. Try it again. Again, look at the dust from from the feet, the dust behaving in a vacuum. It can't fake that. Again, the, uh, the field to the TV camera right that is 180 out from that, it'd be better. Okay, there you go. You got uh, two five on the mic. Copy out. Okay, that's good on the flag. Okay, Houston. Fifteen. Hey, your fourth stage is set. Gas and engine is armed. Six, five, four, go. three, two, one. Go. This will be our ignition. What a liftoff. And liftoff. Roger, ignition. Boom. 
Over. Over. Ten seconds. The guidance, Roger. the onboard guidance has now taken over hey, control. It's over. It's good. We confirm auto ignition. That's affirmative, auto ignition. And they're now tilting over at an angle, speeding up very quickly. And it pretty much just goes on for it's about five minutes, I think, for it to get to lunar orbit. But that that imagery of the flag and then all of the, the gold foil coming off of the, the bottom of the um, of the uh, lower stage of the limb when the upper stage took off is just amazing. So they've got a bunch of this stuff, and, and um, I've got this episode called Extracting History. And, and, and so uh, the idea that you can get things that you can that you can take footage that exists and sharpen it, uh, and make it look like it was shot today on an iPhone is another one of these things of history. So I had a I had a good couple of history of things. I'll throw links for that up as well, in um, both in this one and on the um, on the right angle thing. <coughs> Excuse me. Um. So. Uh, yeah, so for history, it was a big deal. And I was trying to explain to my wife the, the reason I was so excited about this. It's tough for her sometimes understand the motivation of lunatics. Um, but uh, the thing about the Jack the Ripper thing was that I've been wanting to know what that face looked like for 40 years. And now I do know. There's... The footage from Apollo is, is, is shows you what it's like to actually be on the moon much more than uh, than I ever had before. And I was thinking about this. I've you know, talked many times about the planetarium days, but I got to the planetarium in 1973, got into astronomy in 72. And for the first five years that I was in the planetarium, whenever we would show pictures of um, Jupiter, for example, we would have to take the best telescopic image of Jupiter from the Earth and use that. And likewise for Mars. We should take the best image of Mars that we could find, photograph it in a book, photographic, turn it into a slide, and, um, and then I'll just spend 100 years opaquing that damn slide. But in any event, relatively soon after I'd been there, the Mariner 9 mission went to Mars, and now for the first time we've got a good image of it. But in the late 70s, Voyager started sending pictures back. And we went from having a, a blurry picture of Jupiter that looked pretty much like what you'd see through the 12-inch reflector up at the Southern Cross Observatory. Now, all of a sudden, you've got all of the detail from those first Voyager images. Not quite as good as Galileo, not quite as good as New Horizons or any of the rest of the stuff, or, or Juno, but nevertheless in the, the whole idea of the curly bands and stuff. And I think Carl Sagan actually pointed this out, um, that this is a, a magic generation that I live in and people my age lived in because people born before me never got to see the Voyager images, what the planet actually looked like. They, the best they had was telescopic images. And people born after Voyager would, when they look at, what does Jupiter look like? Here's, here's what Jupiter looks like. 
there is a tiny little window in planetary astronomy, and I lived right through it, where we had the satisfaction of seeing things that we'd wanted to see for years, and in some case decades, and waited and waited and waited and wondered and wondered, and then we got the Christmas present. And people before us don't have that experience. People after us don't have that experience. Um, the uh, When I was trying to explain to my wife, I was so excited about this picture of this guy who is almost certainly, in my mind, Jack the Ripper. I said, better example maybe is, you know, I wanted to do, Voyager did uh, Jupiter, Saturn. Uh, I want to say Voyager 1 did Jupiter and Saturn, and I think it was 2 that Ur Uranus and Neptune as well. It might have been the other way around. I think it was that way. <coughs> but they missed Pluto. And again, I'm of an age where Pluto was a planet. It shouldn't be, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a problem with Pluto being demoted. But I've always wanted to know what Pluto looked like, and, and I had to wait 40 years for that. Uh, and Pluto looks nothing like what I thought it would look like. And frankly, I think Pluto's the ugliest planet in the solar system. I was very disappointed with what Pluto looked like. I was hoping for something more blue and kind of, you know, rayed craters and stuff. And you this pink and brown. But I got to see it, and I got to I got to wonder about it. And I think if this evidence for Jack the Ripper continues, then uh, then that's what people will eventually say. Yeah, for a hundred and 40 years, they didn't know who it was, but turns out it was uh, Charles uh, Allen Lechmere. And that's the end of the Jack the Ripper phenomenon, right? If it turns out that this, in, that this evidence holds up to the degree that there's like a uniformity or they find some additional evidence, there was some talk about somebody found a shawl and DNA evidence that linked it to a different candidate, but the DNA analysis was worthless and so on and so forth. Um, but... If this becomes common information, if it becomes, you know, if it stands the test of criticism, then there's no Jack the Ripper mystery. And if there's no Jack the Ripper mystery, then he's just another serial killer. It's just another, just another sick guy in another story. The whole thing about Jack the Ripper was we didn't know who he was. Who, what was the face behind that image? And, and, and how, did, how trapped did we get by our preconceived idea that this would have to be a gentleman. Once, once you point out the fact that this guy was like a, a, a butcher who was out every night, or a butcher delivery guy anyway, all of a sudden, things make sense that should have, that should have bothered us earlier and didn't. That's the kind of thing I love is when you get something to open up the kind of mental box. Okay, I feel like I have to do a, a, at least a couple questions. And then on the other hand, I say to myself, well, if I do a couple questions, I have to do more than a couple questions. So uh, I, think, um, I think what I'm going to do, despite the fact that I'm sure there's a ton of questions waiting in, in um, both the members' blog and on Facebook, I think uh, that after two hours or so, I'm, uh, I'm kind of done for the night. <coughs> um, so anyway, uh, we got to cover a little bit of ground. Uh, Natasha pointed out to me, where was it? I forget how. She'd been telling me the longest time uh, that I should do um, more questions, not uh, spend 
you know, 25 minutes answering one question. Just get through them quickly. I find that when I do that, I feel like I'm ripping you off. Like, you know, like there's other things I think I probably could say about this. But I think uh, since so many people post questions, probably better to get to more of them with shorter answers than, uh, you know, than the alternative and stuff. And, um, yeah. So, anyway. It's real good to be back. Uh, it's good to be uh, vertical. Uh, oh, by the way, I've been trying to adjust this thing forever. It's one of my favorite t-shirts. Medium speed, some drag. Fits me better than it used to. Um, so next time we'll just do questions and we'll pound through them. We'll just, just do as many questions as we possibly can. Uh, until then, um, this show is brought to you by the members at BillBittle.com. And uh, as always, I'm just enormously grateful for, for your support and your membership, especially these days uh, when we need it very, very much. Um, and uh, so for those of you who've been constantly with us and some, some of you came a little bit later and so on, but for those of you who actually are having money deducted from your personal bank accounts to keep this thing going, uh, none of this is possible without you and, and there's not a day that goes by when we don't uh, really appreciate that, consciously appreciate that. So thank you. Um, all right. Uh, I will see you, I expect, next week right here on your very own Stratosphere Lounge.